Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. I think we really, really need to back up and look at how do we, you know, when some type of pharmaceutical gets approved, have we dotted our I's, have we crossed our T's, have we uh, uh, negated all of the conflicts of interest that are uh, that exist in the current system and really get back to basics and make sure that we're protecting people, we're protecting human health, and, and rather than protecting, the, you know, this big pharma corporatocracy. That was Dr. Brian Hooker, the Senior Director of Science and Research at Children's Health Defense, and the co-author, along with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of a brand new must-read book called Vax Unvax, Let the Science Speak. You will hear my entire conversation with Dr. Hooker right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. And as many of you already know, for nearly seven years, I've been running a one-man program to help homeless women on the streets of New York. And you could check the show notes for a link that explains it in more detail. Um, I am also looking to expand this program, and I'm starting to do that in small steps now. And I want to help more people in bigger ways in addition to the homeless women. And basically, to put it simply, I want to try and facilitate miracles on the streets. And I'm there is another link in the show notes that you can check out to learn a little bit more about that. So I'm going to just leave you guys to... Click on those links, learn more, and follow your heart because I need your financial support and I need you to share the links in order to keep this going and growing. So I thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. In 1796, Dr. Edward Jenner developed what might have been the first vaccine. This one was for smallpox. And then all the way up from then to 1962, Kids were only still getting five doses of vaccines. But if we fast forward to 2023, where we are now, children are getting a minimum of 73 doses, including 28 usually during the first year of their life. Now, this should beg the questions, are they safer? Are the kids safer? Are the kids healthier for this sudden jump? As I learned from the book we're going to discuss, vaccinated kids can have higher odds, sometimes much higher odds, of allergies, food allergies, hay fever, eczema, pneumonia, ear infections, asthma, gastrointestinal issues, eating disorders, ADHD, learning disabilities, neurodevelopmental disorders, behavioral issues, and yes, autism. So to talk about this and so much more, I am thrilled to have as a guest Dr. Brian Hooker, who is the Chief Scientific Officer at Children's Health Defense and the co-author, did I say Chief Scientific Officer, and the co-author of a brand new book called Vax Unvax, Let the Science Speak, that he wrote with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. So Dr. Hooker, Brian, welcome to Post Woke. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's really an honor to be here. I'm really grateful that you were able to make the time to do this and give us a chance to learn from your expertise. And before we get into nuts and bolts, I want to talk more about what's been going on because as a very interested observer, over the past three plus years, I've noticed that, sure, many, many different camps have popped up, but we can, in a broad sense, lump them into two groups. The first group would would just see the title of your book, cover their ears and scream anti-vaxxer. The other group, interestingly, the more skeptical group, um, would might also cover their ears and scream controlled opposition because you don't make a blanket statement that all vaccines must be banned and all of them are, are the enemy. So I'm going to step aside now and give you room. Can you tell us what was the idea and the purpose behind this book, Vax on Vax, and how do you deal with such generalizations from these different groups that have that have become entrenched in today's society? 
I think that's a really great question. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been advocating for vaccine safety and doing vaccine safety research for over 20 years now. And one of the things that the federal government has never done is they've never studied uh, children and adults who were unvaccinated, uh, including those who are completely unvaccinated versus those who are following the vaccination schedule or those who are getting individual vaccines like the COVID-19 shot. And so, you know, the, the government has never done this fundamental study, even though, like you said, there are 72, 73 vaccines in the schedule for infants and children through the year, 18 years of age. And so, um, you know, we, we, uh, Bobby and I have been very, very concerned about that. Bobby actually met with Dr. Anthony Fauci and then Dr. Francis Collins, uh, in a meeting in 2017, where, um, he asked them that specific question why haven't you studied the health outcomes of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children and adults? And Dr. Fauci swore up and down, oh, yes, we've done these studies. We've, you know, the, there, there are plenty of these studies. In fact, he wheeled in files of, um, of, of papers, scientific papers, and he rifles through these papers and he cannot find one instance of a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study. And exasperated, then Fauci says, oh, well, I'll email you these studies. I, I'll, I'll get back with you. I know that they exist. But really, truly, the government has never done these studies. Uh, but Bobby did not stop there and undeterred, he contacted me in 2019 and we started looking for unvaccinated, vaccinated studies that were hiding in plain sight. So I, I started to look at the National Library of Medicine, which is the PubMed website, and look at scientific papers uh, where either intentionally or accidentally there was a comparison with between a vaccinated group of individuals and an unvaccinated group of individuals. And we featured those on Bobby's Instagram account. And, you know, 60 studies later that we had found where there were comparisons between vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, then Bobby gets deplatformed from Instagram and Facebook in 2021. So what we ended up doing was making this into a book and we continued to look for studies. Now there's over 100 studies featured, including studies around the COVID-19 vaccine in 11 chapters, you know, some dealing with a vaccine schedule, some dealing with vaccines in pregnancy, some dealing with individual vaccines. And that's, you know, how this compilation or, or compendium of studies that it is now vax, unvax, let the science speak. That's how that came about. Fantastic. That's fascinating. I, I when you say that that um that you were looking for studies where purposely or accidentally, can you clarify how that would happen accidentally? Well, there were some studies where uh, the the uh, study authors were clearly very pro-vaccine, and so they looked at what was called vaccine hesitancy or vaccine refusal. And but they would find these interesting phenomenon where. Um, you know, curiously, and they wouldn't be the main result of the paper, but they would be sort of in the fine print where all of a sudden, you know, for example, a researcher in 2005 found that uh, vaccine hesitant or vaccine refusal patients uh, had 11 times as many uh, as 11 times uh, higher incidence of asthma than those that were completely vaccinated. And so, you know, we would find these nuggets. We'd really have to go through these papers through a, with a fine-tooth comb because a lot of times these results and these comparisons uh, were done very, very quietly uh, because it has been open season on scientists who would dare do this type of comparison. Wow. And, and when that open season... Um, would you say that it likely began with the laws that were passed in 1986 that that um, really, really, uh, on a federal level, began to protect big pharma when it comes to vaccinations? You're absolutely right. The 1986 Act, it's called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, then um, provided a liability shield for vaccine manufacturers. Uh, so they could not get sued for uh, damages, design defects uh, for from individuals who had been vaccine injured. So 
after that time, the vaccine schedule became very, very bloated uh, because manufacturers could introduce more and more vaccines with no liability essentially whatsoever uh, for, you know, the design of and distribution, you know, of these vaccines. And so that's where we, you know, in 1980, there were something like 11 needle sticks, 25 individual vaccines on the schedule. Now we're up at 73. Wow. You would imagine um, I mean, recognizing how heavily conditioned of a society we are, but you would still imagine the fact that that uh, that it would have to be red flags for people that the number of vaccines exploded the moment Big Pharma lost any risk of liability, but yet it, it we get shouted down with a with this word that basically stains you when you get called an anti-vaxxer, it's like a, it's like this indelible mark on you that you, you'll be perpetually defending yourself against. It's, it's um, I'm so grateful for your book because you lay out the background that doesn't get mentioned often enough because you can't even get past the, the, the shouting of anti-vaxxer. And if you don't mind, we, I'd like to jump into some of um what I learned and ask you about it, and, and I think let's let's go right into the big one first. You 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 and and uh, Mr. Kennedy talk about autism, and I have a couple of things in front of me, and I'm going to give you room after that. I just want to. Am I? It's thimerosal. Thimerosal. Do I have that correct? Thimerosal. You were correct the first time. Yes. Okay. So a child given a vaccine containing thimerosal has seven times the risk of autism than a child who does it. They have four times the risk of autism. There's four times the risk of autism if kids get the MMR vaccine before they turn 36 months of age. So now you go way more into that, but those two jumped out at me. Um, what can you share about this? And and what is your your at least an assumption as to why this evidence hasn't like it's it's palpable, tangible evidence that should be stirring up tons of questions. Is, is it just what we talked about there, the that big farmer silencing people? How is it not reaching a wider audience? So you can attack that from any angle there, like the literally what the vex, the connection to autism and then also why that connection is so silenced. That's a really good question, Mickey. And, you know, I believe that with the advent of the autism epidemic, you know, back in the 1980s, the rate of autism was about one in 2000. Now it's one in 36 and one in 29 boys. And so uh, it, it behooved the CDC and the FDA and the Department of Health and Human Services uh, in general to hide the link between vaccines and autism. Uh, and they did that very, very well. Uh, one of the reasons is that if you look at uh, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which is a government program, as the alternative to suing a vaccine manufacturer for a vaccine injury, uh, you know, back when the uh, the whole concern regarding vaccines and autism really started in the early 2000s, there were over 5,000 litigants in that National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, if they would have all been compensated for autism, that would have uh, bankrupted the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program and the DHHS in general many, many times over. And so they could not, you know, uh, they, it, they, they could not admit this wrong because they were trying to avoid paying out all of these claims for all of these children who were damaged. There were 5,000 claimants. And, and so it, it, it served them well and it served their pharma masters well not to put a black mark on the vaccination program by releasing the fact that the Marisol uh, containing vaccines was uh, was causing autism and as well as the timing of the MMR vaccine, you know, before 36 months of age was associated with autism. And those, you just quoted two CDC publications, you know, two publications where the, they actually, uh, hid those results from the light of day. Wow. Oh man. All right. Before I respond Further into that, I, I do want to ask because when I've discussed this at that at the point where you just say even half of what you just said, a fair amount of people say to me, "Well, that leap in the number of um, 
autism diagnosis has to do with better diagnostic testing and and practitioners know what to look for now more than they did in the past and that's why there's a higher number it, 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 what do you what how do you respond to that comeback when you look at a non or a low functioning autistic child they're really hard to miss um, and the rates, the rates of both high functioning autism and low functioning autism have, um, have increased precipitously, you know, exponentially since the 1970s and 1980s. And so I'm hard pressed to believe that they just didn't notice it earlier or, uh, they misdiagnosed it earlier. And in fact, there have been some, uh, seminal research studies. There was a study that was commissioned by the California department of, uh, public health, uh, back in the late two thousands, uh, by a researcher from the university of California, Davis. And, and her name was Irva Hertz Picciota. And she looked at, uh, uh, systematic educational records in the state of California, and she determined that better diagnosing would really account for less than 25% of the increase, actual increase that was being seen in autism diagnoses in California. And so there have been many, many other studies, but but to, to uh, misdiagnose or to miss, in general, low-functioning autism is sort of like missing a train wreck. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have the diagnostic skills, but like probably every person listening to this podcast, you, you know, people who have um, been diagnosed with, like you said, low functioning autism. And it's different when you meet someone that has what used to be called Asperger's. I don't even know if they use that term anymore, but Sometimes you're like, I'm not sure, but in the vast majority of cases in my life that you can recognize, hey, something is going on here. So it seems like they're really grasping for straws with that excuse. But yet, I, I suppose a public that doesn't want to open this can of worms will take whatever sounds official coming from the authorities. Right. It almost seems like wishful thinking on their part that, you know, we can we can apply non-scientific methods and non-scientific bases for for these questions but then you, you know for other things we can follow the science exactly yeah so so when you say that um i'm trying let me look at the when you said that the the timerosol has seven times the risk you use the word that it causes autism and with the MMR, you said it's associated with. So is there, is it fair to say that there, is it correlation or causation at this point that is being exposed? Like when you found studies that, that weren't meant to be found or were accidental, is, is there literal causation? I think that there are multiple links in, you know, the whole uh, exposure to thimerosal that lead me to believe that is that it is sort of, you know, the the linchpin. That's what pushes a genetically susceptible individual over the mark that pushes them over the edge into an autism diagnosis. Now, not everybody that uh, receives a thimerosal containing vaccine gets autism, right? Mm -hmm. But there are certain children who are genetically susceptible. And I do know that in my own son's case, my son, uh, who's 25 years old, sustained a vaccine injury uh, back in 1999. I know that in my son's case, that was really what pulled the trigger. And we did genetic testing on him previous or, or after that sort of subsequently and saw that, yeah, he was set up. He was not a person that could detoxify the mercury that was in vaccines. And so it was a big setup. And so I choose my words carefully. I, it, I, I like the fact that you picked up on the difference because I, I think with, you know, it, it was preposterous when um, the mercury that's a neurotoxin you know, when the CDC and the Institute of Medicine was saying that mercury and neurotoxin did not cause neurodevelopmental disorders, you know, it was almost, it was a contradiction of terms. But I think that, you know, we, if we look at the science, if we look at the biological mechanisms, yeah, you can look at that and say, yes, it does uh, uh, sort of eclipse sort of the standard of causality. Thank you very much for clarifying that, because because as I don't have to tell you, these are the sticking points that people can't get past. Because I truly believe that people 
do want the best. It's just that this is this is maybe more than they can possibly imagine that 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 the the medical industrial complex is not not following even the most fundamental common sense. Like everything you just said would point to um, stopping those vaccines and doing tests, or at the very, very least, perhaps doing genetic testing before you give something that could um, impact you if you have the predisposition for it, which seems like a kind of roundabout way to just stop it and do the research. But I appreciate you laying that out as a professional there. And um, I want right, to let's move into a couple other ones because you guys you cover all the vaccines and I'm thinking of the connection between vaccines and what's been called Gulf War syndrome and I find it so ironic because we live in a country where the phrase support the troops is essentially a, a solemn prayer but when right. there are l- provable links that vaccines cause Gulf War syndrome in the troops that we're supposed to support why are like why aren't we then supporting the troops by saying to big pharma hey stop doing this to them exactly um and and it's very it, it was very difficult to write that particular chapter of the book um you know because of the whole connection with gulf war syndrome and the fact that um you know in some of the publications it revealed that many of the people that were diagnosed with Gulf War syndrome never went to the Gulf War. And, but yet, you know, the common thread was that they received many, many vaccines, including the anthrax vaccine, which is a very, very, uh, to my mind, a very, uh, very dubious vaccine, a very dangerous vaccine that military personnel were uh, subjected to on a routine basis. And so looking at those studies and and then looking at the amount of vaccines that uh, the service men and women received during their tours of dirty duty, you know, upwards to, um, you know, 10 vaccines, uh, 10 separate needle sticks for different antigens, depending on whether they were going overseas, depending on whether they were staying, you know, uh, in the United States. And, and seeing, you know, just this devastating illness. And, and it really jumps out. The other thing that really jumped out about this was it was woefully understudied. There, we could only find a very, very few publications where they even considered looking at vaccines and Gulf War syndrome. And the CDC, again, uh, uh, a person by the name of Dr. Colleen Boyle, uh, who was uh, for years the head of the National uh, Center for Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities. She was instrumental in covering up the causal relationship uh, between, uh, you know, the anthrax vaccines and vaccines in general and Gulf War syndrome. So it was weird. It was like CDC uh, cut their teeth on Gulf War syndrome, and then they segued into denying causation between vaccines and autism. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it just it's it's it it's a sad irony because if we live in a country where if you badmouth a veteran, you could risk being physically attacked. But yet, here this is a chance where you could stand up for it. But yet, the people in charge are not supporting the troops because, like you said, the the information is out there, and I can re- I can right. remember reading about this for years. Now, I don't know how much time we're gonna if I if we have, can circle back to HPV, DTC, yes. FV, Hep B, and so on. But I wanna. I want to go to to two, at least two more. One being perhaps the most casual of vaccines, being the annual flu shot. It's the one I live in New York City. I walk around. I I walk past uh, mom and pop pharmacies or the Dwayne Reed CVS type, and the big signs are in the window. Get your free flu shot, and it's the most casual, undiscussed uh, vaccine that people get. It's for everyone, including pregnant women and children and children as young as six months. It's considered virtually benign. I anecdotally, I could say I've I could say I've never had one. But um, when I was doing personal training, I would I would be talking to clients, and every, I'm talking about every single client I knew that got a flu shot still got the flu. So I'm I'm asking you, is there any evidence that flu shots work? But more importantly, what are they? What is this casual? Um, you know, annual vaccine doing to us, particularly the very, very young children who are getting it as young as six months. 
Well, um, one of the things I w- I'd like to point out is that the the su- some formulations of the flu shot still contain thimerosal. It's one of the few vaccines on the schedule that you would find uh, 25 micrograms of mercury per dose. And uh, there's also, it gets worse than uh, six months of age because the flu shot is re- recommended for pregnant women. And so I, I discussed this there, not only in the flu shot chapter, but also in the chapter on vaccines and pregnancy, because it's one of the uh, vaccines, one of the first vaccines that was approved for pregnant women. And so you're giving uh, a developing unborn child a bolus dose of mercury of 25 micrograms. And scientifically, it has been shown that that mercury partitions in the placenta and more mercury will go to the baby than it does to the mom. And so uh, to me, that is really, really preposterous and, and, and diabolical uh, that we're doing this uh, to pregnant women. We're doing this to unborn children, um, you know, just to, just to lead off. But the, the other things that we did find uh, was that the, that the flu shot um, in many cases did not prevent the flu, that uh, in some instances, I believe that influenza hospitalizations were higher in children who received the flu shot than uh, those who did not receive the flu shot. And so, and, and in addition, there was a, um, there, there's what's called immune dysregulation. And I think that immune dysregulation happens uh, very um, robustly with the flu shot and what, and rather than getting the flu, the individuals that got the flu shot were must, much more susceptible to other respiratory infections. Their rate of respiratory infections and things that would lead to uh, more serious complications like pneumonia, the, the rate was higher in those that got the flu shot than in those that didn't get the, get the flu shot. So it's weird. It's supposed to prevent infections, but it seemed to in, enhance the infectivity of things that would cause respiratory infection. That's fascinating and, and just infuriating at the same time. Kudos for using the word diabolical because that's <laughs> that is as accurate as it gets. And and yeah, as I'll say, anecdotally, I, I talk to people, they get the flu shot, they feel like crap for a couple of days, like they have the flu, and then eventually they get the flu. And now you're telling me that even if the shot quote unquote works, that they don't get the exact flu they were they were vaccinated for, it increases the odds of them getting a different respiratory infection. So what's I mean, I guess in a scientific study, and I'm doing air quotes as I'm talking to you, type of way. If if you got the flu shot and didn't get the flu, the flu shot worked. But when ignoring the fact that it increased the likelihood that you could get other respiratory illnesses, and perhaps, like you said, not most importantly, we're putting young children and then unborn children at risk by just make just basically giving it to everyone. Exactly, and and it's it's very, you, you know, it's it's very insidious that. Um, what we're what what we're doing by vaccinating is that we're preventing specific infectious diseases that the vaccines are designed for. But I think we're really, really um, challenging and and causing a decline in overall health, especially if you look at the incidence of chronic disease in the United States. Twenty seven percent of the population has been diagnosed with at least one chronic disorder. And if you look at the money that chronic disorders, you know, you know, that pharma's chasing with this, um, for every dollar that's spent on medical care in the United States, 86 cents goes directly for treating chronic disorders. So, you know, I think we need to focus on what is the problem? The problem is not these infectious diseases that are actually treatable. The problem is really that we have a sick generation uh, of people and they're getting sicker and sicker and we need to know why and we need to be able to ameliorate these chronic disorders. Yeah, and ask logical questions like you do saying that, if these numbers jump, for example, you said 27%, if they jump during a particular time period, the scientific method would ask you to say, well, what happened during that time period? And then there's this exponential leap in the number of, of vaccines they're getting, including with mercury. It, like, it just, it's just so infuriating that, that they've been able to hide this for so long. And when you mention mercury, it makes me think when I was 
very young, I took poor care of my teeth and I got lots of fillings. And in my younger days that were mercury fillings. Right. Um, since then, they've gotten like refilled. Um, and I'm happy to say I don't have mercury in my mouth, but when I first was old enough to do research on it, I remember hearing or reading somewhere that's, that somebody said, I don't know if this is literally true, but he said, there's only three places that mercury could be stored in your mouth, in a vaccine or in a super fun site. And, <laughs> and, and when you hear that, it's just, it's your jaw should drop at that point because they're, this, these are the experts. These are the ones that we quote unquote trust the science. And we have access to, to vast amounts of information now that I didn't have when I was getting mercury fillings. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a crime and a sin to not be doing your own research, which got so demonized in the past couple of years. And, and, and that's part of why I'm just so excited to be talking to you because this book is all about giving people that power to do their research because um, just by shot by shot, disease by disease, you have so much information. The, the end notes are like a third of the book practically backing up everything you do. And I urge people to go to the show notes and check out the book. But um, I would want to jump now into the big one that, that, uh, that's on everyone's mind when we're talking about v vaccines, and that's the COVID jab. And, and you talk about side effects like Bell's palsy, cardiac adverse events, myocarditis, carditis, pericarditis, blood clots, um, cerebral venous thrombosis, shingles, hearing loss, et cetera, and saying that the COVID jab has at least 50 times the adverse event as the flu shot, and the flu shot doesn't have a small amount of adverse events. What would be the starting point where you'd want to enter into telling us about this shot and what, what motivates you to just want to you know, signal the alarm to people that, that they need to, they need to look a lot closer at what's happening. Well, it was interesting, Mickey, as we started to look at the information regarding the COVID-19 vaccine, we found 30 separate publications that showed adverse events. And these were Vax on Vax publications. And so all of a sudden, the, you know, the internet was really exploding with the fact that, um, the COVID-19 shots, and these were primarily, the, if you look in the book, there, there are uh, some references to AstraZeneca and some other types of vaccines, but these were primarily the mRNA vaccines, which um, came from Pfizer and Moderna. And so we saw this explosion of these adverse events. And then we also went to the CDC's uh, reporting system called the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And, and it was exploding as well. I mean, there are more um, there are more adverse events reported for COVID-19 shots than almost the rest of the 32-year history of monitoring vaccines. So all of the rest of the vaccines combined, you know, within less than three years, there have been more adverse events associated with the COVID shot. Those, this is a, a really, really dirty vaccine uh, that, you know, I would, I, I do not give medical advice. Um, but, you know, I, I think that people are best served to do their research, look at VAERS, look at the chapter on COVID-19. We found so many publications, and again, for cardiac adverse events, for, uh, you know, the other adverse events that you described, Bell's palsy, uh, uh, blood clotting. I mean, you know, the spike protein does cause blood clotting, so circulatory damage and clotting events and things like strokes that are associated with clotting events are really jumping off the charts right now. And the other thing that is very insidious is that, um, you know, DNA and RNA like to insert into the human genome. And, you know, that's a dirty little secret. And what, what we're doing when, when uh, an individual gets an mRNA shot, we call that in lab, we call that transfection. And transfection is used to deliver exogenous nucleic acid material, you know, foreign nucleic acid material directly into organisms so it will integrate into their own genome. And so, you know, this could be, you know, when you do that, that causes all different types of cancers, which have been shown to be on a severe uptick in the COVID-19 era. And then also you could be producing the spike protein for life.
So, you know, there are a lot of different things. It was the, the Operation Warp Speed was a bad idea before its time. It was just just a nightmare as watching it unfold and watching the emergency youth, uh, use authorization being granted to Pfizer, then Moderna, then to Johnson and Johnson. Um, it was it was like watching a car wreck in slow motion. Um, and so, you know, I can't emphasize more the uptick in adverse events, the uptick in mortality that we've seen over and against all of the rest of the vaccine schedule because of COVID-19 shots. Thank, thank you for that. And you reminded me, um, last year I had Dr. Jessica Rose on twice, and I am going to include those links in the show notes for people oh, good. Who, who want to ha- listen to shows that go that are kind of theirs oriented, like just on one topic, because as you know, that's that's her her thing. So yeah, it, the numbers are mind blowing, and yet the classic comeback is is well, theirs is it's uh, self reporting and and people try and talk their way around that but i mean it as as if anyone wants to listen to those i'll put them in the show notes dr rose does a great job of debunking all the classic um comebacks about vares and as to in fact quite the opposite it, not only is it not over reporting um false claims it's quite the opposite um Correct. which i can't i i do want to um lead into some very current events like this week um President Biden talked about a new shot that um, that he, to use his phrase, he said, this one will work. And then he said, and, and he said, everyone and everyone should get it. Um, so at, when you're talking about just now watching a, a, a car wreck in slow motion, how did that feel? Was this a just a political election uh, ploy or do you feel like there's something in the pipeline that they're going to try next? Well, there are $5 billion chasing that elusive COVID-19 vaccine that actually works. And so that does scare me. Um, you know, the the advent of people getting repeated boosters, you know, for the same type of antigen or same type of pathogen, it's not good for your body. You know, so getting one COVID shot is bad enough, but getting upwards to seven or eight COVID shots is really absolutely a nightmare. And what it does is it takes the immune system and it fixates it on one thing, one specific thing. And then, but you lose surveillance and you lose immunity for so many other things, including cancers. Like I mentioned before, you know, immune surveillance for cancer prevention is so, so important. And so when we're dysregulating the immune system in that particular fashion, and then, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, uh, president Biden was marketing for Pfizer and Moderna, uh, in that, because you know, Pfizer and Moderna made so much money over the pandemic, but now it seems like they're just going back to the same well in order to make sure that the pharma revenues, um, you know, for these companies are intact. You know, that they can sustain all the money that they made over COVID nineteen, and and it it really really scares me to death. You know, it 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 really does. Uh, uh, for, for anybody that would be considering that for anybody that would be, um, you know, for lack of better phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid and getting so many boosters. Um, I, I just really fear that both the short-term and the long-term health implications. And from the way you just described it, Brian, it sounded like, um, there's this, it, it comes out of this transhumanist mindset that there has become this intense disdain for and disrespect for the body's own immune system, that they would give us shots that would turn off that internal surveillance. And even let's just say miraculously, one of those shots in the past couple of years would have actually worked. Um, the price you're paying is that you're shutting down surveillance on many, many other chronic and or potentially deadly diseases. It, do you feel like that the scientific community in general is just moving towards more of a transhumanist perspective than saying, hey, the body is designed to check for all this stuff and it's been doing this forever. And we, sh- we, should, we should be leaning on that while continuing research elsewhere. I feel like it's biohacking. You know, biohacking yeah. is a term that, you know, is has been used in several different connotations. But, um, you know, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're very, yeah. very complex organisms. And the immune system is very, very complex. And vaccines 
actually modulate about 5% of the immune system. If you look at a vaccination response, you know, that's, that's an antibody response that's based on a type of cells called B cells. And that's really 5% or less of the entire immune system, which involves other types of cells in the innate immune system, in the acquired immune system, and what's called the complement system and the interleukin system. Uh, there are so many different systems that come into play. And it's almost like um, you know, the, uh, the medical community is hacked into this one little thing, this one little portion of the immune system, and, they, and they've done it over and over and over again. But there are long-term physiological ramifications for doing that. And instead of teaching that robust immunology and talking about the entire immune milieu in terms of cells and chemicals and biochemicals, we're hacking the immune system with antibodies and, and really with very, very little knowledge and forethought of what we're doing to the rest of the body. Yes. And that, that segues into I'm going to, again, I'm encouraging people to please buy this book so we don't have to list them all out. But you and um, Bobby Kennedy do end up with some six steps that would help take us towards vaccine safety. And I do want to ask a question about the first one because you say um, subject vaccines to scientifically rigorous approval process. Um, now, I'm going to be somewhat facetious to say I, I, I assume that means better than what we have now because I've read that that um, every year some f over 4,000 uh, medicines and medical devices that were FDA approved are pulled from the market when they turn out to be dangerous or don't work. So in general, we need, we need a scientifically rigorous approval process for the vaccines and across the board because it seems like way too many items that are dangerous and not fully tested are being released to the public before it, anywhere near there that, that they are ready. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at step one, it really is an indictment on the current system, which is fatally flawed because the FDA is captured by the pharmaceutical industry. And so now there's with, with this ad, advent too of pandemic prevention and giving more power and authority and centralizing power, you know, with the FDA and, and also above that with the World Health Organization uh, is very, very scary. You know, they talk about uh, 100 days to a, an approved product, a product or 100 days to an approved vaccine uh, from identifying a pathogen. That's really, really scary stuff. We need rigorous long-term studies. And, you know, the long-term health effects of vaccination, of other things like biotech drugs, of, of traditional drugs, you know, typically these have been studied in clinical trials for periods of four to 10 years. And yet now we're saying, okay, this is the advent of warp speed. So we'll pump, the, pump these things out with a very, very cavalier attitude towards human health in general. And, um, and so, you know, I think we really, really need to back up and look at how do we, you know, when some type of pharmaceutical gets approved, have we dotted our I's, have we crossed our T's, have we uh, uh, negated all of the conflicts of interest that are uh, that exist in the current system and really get back to basics and make sure that we're protecting people, we're protecting human health, and, and rather than protecting, the, you know, this big pharma corporatocracy. Yeah, I, I mean, all I could say is amen to that because it's just, it is just common sense and and fundamental self defense as human beings to say that that we can't relinquish responsibility for our health to an entity that makes more money if we're sick. And and that's what, and what I love about this book is that it 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 gives the reader the evidence that. Maybe they just the person just doesn't have the time to look up all the stuff that you guys did, and there it is. Sure. But then, then, then they could read what you, what you, your your links and et cetera, and then go check even further. But it's it's the, that uncle at Thanksgiving that's going to that's going to dismiss any discussion of vaccines. Get them to read this book because it's it's laid out in, in such an accessible yet convincing way, and and I know that also you and several people involved in this are going to be involved in a conference coming up. Is it in October? It's in November, November, November 3rd through 5th. I think I know what you're talking about. 
Yeah, so so it's the Rise and Resist Children's Health Defense Second Annual Conference, and you're going to be speaking there along with the whole group of people. And I just want to say to listeners that if they go to the show notes, the link will be in there. And if you enjoyed what Dr. Hooker had to say here, I urge you read the book and then perhaps even consider going to the conference. I would imagine there's a, a streaming version available too. So there's a way to, to hear a lot more voices and to, to just learn a lot more that can spur you to then do even further research because the goal on either side shouldn't be to say, hey, we got to figure it out. Listen to us. And what I like about this book is that you're saying, hey, we're going to, we're going to, give you a lot more information than you can get from a corporate media, but we're not telling you what to think. We're just trying to fill in further context so you can make an informed decision. And to me, that's that's the most anyone should do and the best anyone can do is to just round out the amount of information that we're taking in and then you trust your own um, common sense to say, all right, now that I have all this information, I can make a decision that is best for me and my family. Absolutely. I, I really like the way that you have summed that up because, you know, I want uh, individuals to take this information and to take it to their medical practitioners um, and have co- frank conversations with them, you know, regarding the health. And and we should be doing this in all aspects, not just vaccination. Um, you know, I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD. You know, I don't have a doctor of medicine. I have a doctor in philosophy. It's actually in biochemical engineering. Um, uh, so I don't give medical advice. But I do want to make the science accessible to individuals so they can. And it does come from my worldview, the worldview of uh, also a father of a vaccine injured child. But um, I do want to uh, equip uh, individuals, parents, uh, even practitioners, uh, so they can make good decisions for themselves. Yes. And in my humble opinion, that's what you've done in this book. And I, excuse me, kudos again to you for being the one to say, hey, we all have biases. Wherever wherever we are getting information from, we have to learn how to filter it through the source. And what I, what I love about the the Vax on Vax book is that you make no pretensions that that somehow you're the only objective humans on Earth. You're but you're saying we're filling in those gaps. And as you as you just phrased it, we're making the science more accessible, which is really all we could ask for. So as we wrap up, it, with all that we said in this and all that you've studied, um, what, what gives you optimism? What makes you feel like we can shift this to, uh, switch gears into a more positive path towards sustainable change that is going to be beneficial and encourage people to take responsibility for their own health? Well, I see more and more people really, um, starting to wake up regarding, you know, this whole aspect of, uh, lifetime vaccination and cradle to grave vaccination and starting to ask some very, very serious questions. You know, it was, it, it was difficult in, in the COVID-19 pandemic, but part of the silver lining was that we saw in real time the pharmaceutical industrial complex that is in bed with the federal government over, overplaying their hand regarding several different aspects, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, uh, not treating COVID, you know, um, uh, with, with a, you know, appropriate antiviral drugs, you know, instead just saying, oh, well, wait until there's a vaccine and just go home and, you know, be sick. Um, and so a lot of people saw that play out and, and it piqued their curiosity. They started to ask questions and they started to, you know, vote with their feet and say, no, I'm not going to do this. So I see more and more numbers uh, of individuals starting to ask uh, difficult scientific questions, starting to not accept the narrative that, you know, they need to trust the science and that Anthony Fauci is the science, but people are starting to uh, really take these decisions in hand and they're starting to read science and ask really, really good questions. Absolutely. And I could not agree with you more. I've been using the same exact phrase you use where I say, hey, look, things I'm not pretending things aren't dire, but I do look around and I call on the powers that shouldn't be. They have overplayed their hand. And I do have faith as I watch people waking up and coming around to that viewpoint that that they, they have 
disrespected us to the point where they don't even think they can see that, that we could see what's right in front of us. And they've overplayed their hand. And not everyone has caught on yet, but we don't need everyone to catch on. And, and I think people need to re- remain positive and focused on these the, on speaking into existence the changes we want as opposed to saying oh another winter of lockdowns another winter of a new vaccine a new mandate that may or may not happen but we also play a role in creating a mindset that can challenge it in a very powerful and positive way absolutely uh i can't i can't thank you enough for that and um you know i i i also appreciate uh that you've mentioned the conference uh, I think it's uh, you know if I can give you a shameless plug on it as well. Please do. Um, I do. I do believe do believe that it is uh, streamed. It's called Rise and Resist, and um, and it's you know if you can attend in person, it's November third through fifth uh, in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, you can uh, go directly to the Children's Health Defense website and find out more about that as well. Thank you. As I've been saying, when when people finish listening to all this excellent information you've shared they can go to the show notes there's a link to get vax no vax the book you did with robert f kennedy jr and a link to the conference you just mentioned so they can continue enhancing their knowledge so brian dr hooker thank you for doing this thank you for the book and just for your overall mindset and i'm going to give you kudos one more time thank you for throwing in the fearfully and wonderfully made line and it's been an absolute pleasure and i've learned a real lot from talking to you so Really, I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you very much, Mickey. It was it was a total pleasure. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you are getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word, and let's get back to the show. Thank you again to Dr. Brian Hooker. Thank you for an excellent conversation. And I urge everyone to check the show notes to find out how to order the book he just co-wrote with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. It's called Vax, Unvax, Let the Science Speak, and it is a treasure trove of valuable information. And while you're checking the show notes, click on the link to find out more about the upcoming Children's Health Defense Conference in November. And in closing, I just want to urge everyone to remember the words of the poet Mary Oliver, keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. It is important that we do our homework and we establish our values and beliefs, but it is equally as important that we keep our minds open and our guard up. <laughs>